Thank you, David Praise Team, for taking us to the throne of God above this morning. So thank you for that very much. Um, so before we get into our text this morning, I want to just talk for a second a little bit about Holy Week and about Easter and about a few things that we want to encourage you uh, with this week as you prepare for Easter next week. It's going to be very different for us. Uh, this looks like the new normal for us, at least for the next several weeks, is that we're going to have to do worship services by remote live stream, including Easter Sunday. Never thought I would see the day where Easter Sunday the church could not gather publicly in a building like ours and instead would have to be broadcasting over the internet. But we're going to try our best to do that next week and I'm going to bring an Easter message next week that I hope will encourage you as well as challenge and convict those who need to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. One of the things that I always try to encourage the church to do during Holy Week is to take time this week to maybe change your practices a little bit in, in a way to begin to anticipate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. For instance, there, one of the practices I used to do was, was there were some books that I would read sometimes or some scripture verses that I would read and contemplate during Good Friday and Easter uh, week. And so maybe you can do that. Um, our North American Mission Board and specifically our Senior Vice President of Evangelism, Dr. Johnny Hunt, this last week were instituted a challenge to all Southern Baptist churches to use this week as an opportunity to share the gospel. Because a lot of people's senses are heightened during Easter anyway. And um, so the, the North American Mission Board has been doing a campaign for the last year or so called Who's Your One? We've been involved in that here at the church, been asking you to identify someone in your life who is your one, someone that you're praying for, someone that you're looking to share the gospel with. And in continuing in that stream of Who's Your One, Dr. Johnny Hunt had a great idea this week that, that all Christians and Southern Baptist churches take some time this week to record your testimony. Take a 60-second video on your phone or on your computer or, or whatever, your tablet. Take a short 60-second video of your testimony, and hopefully you know how to share your testimony in about 60 seconds or less about how you came to know Christ and what Christ has done for you and how Christ makes a difference in your life and to share that on your social media page. So maybe on your Facebook or your Instagram to share your testimony and to use the hashtag my story. So you, if you don't know about hashtag, that's that little pound sign that you have on your phone and you would put hashtag M-Y-S-T-O-R-Y, hashtag my story and put that on your Facebook feed this week. And so I'd encourage you to do that sometime this week, maybe on Good Friday or maybe on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter. You can record your testimony and just put it up there and tell people about the difference that Christ has made in your life. It's a way that we can still do gospel conversations even in an era of social distancing when our face-to-face -face communication has been extremely challenged. Last year here at Central Park, we had a Good Friday prayer gathering where we set up prayer stations throughout our sanctuary and, and had people come in and, and, and pray over specific areas and go through a prayer exercise. We're not going to be able to do that this year because of the limitations and just by exercising wisdom and having people stay at home. But this coming Friday, I do plan to do a Facebook Live um, from, from my house and share some thoughts with you. I don't know exactly what time I'll be doing that yet, but I'll be putting that on my feed as well as on the church Facebook feed. And you can join us by Facebook Live. And I'll have some, some Good Friday thoughts for us to think about. And also, we are planning, if we can get everything together this week, 
to send to you a prayer exercise that you can do at home on Good Friday. And so maybe that morning when you're doing your devotion or that afternoon after we get done with the Facebook Live feed, we'll have some scriptures for you to read and contemplate in several different areas that we would ask you to pray for as a church family. And so we hope to send that to you this week as well. Just some things to help us think about, turn our minds towards the cross and the empty tomb um, this coming uh, Holy Week. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up once again to 1 Peter chapter 4. And this morning we are in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And we're in part 2 of a sermon series that I started last week called Stewards of Grace. Now, this, this chapter 4 that we're looking at right now builds upon some of the things that Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, specifically about our, our calling to suffer for righteousness' sake that we are called to suffer because of our faith in Christ and because of our commitment to live righteously before Him. And so Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Now what Peter is doing in chapter 3, verse 18, is reminding us of the centrality of the gospel message in every area of our life. So as he's challenging us to endure suffering for righteousness' sake, he points us once again to the gospel and to Jesus Christ and reminds us that we can endure suffering for righteousness' sake because we're connected to a Savior who suffered the ultimate injustice on our behalf. And so that we can endure facing injustice and mistreatment for being a follower of Jesus Christ because our Savior has done so. He reminds us about the centrality of the gospel that the fuel for obedience and faithfulness is found in grounding ourselves each and every day in the enormous and glorious truth of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done to rescue us from our sins and to redeem us and to forgive us. And so Peter builds upon chapter 3, verse 18 and chapter 4 to begin to show us that because we've been shown such great grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are now to be good stewards of that grace that was demonstrated for us on the cross. And it's a reminder to us, we talked about this some last week, that grace may be free, but grace is not cheap. And grace is never to be treated as something that is some sort of spiritual entitlement or privilege. Grace is not a license in our life to continue in the sinful pursuits of our heart without any sort of spiritual consequence. Grace is not a spiritual credit card that God gives us in which the balance will one day be paid by someone else. Grace is a gift. It's the most precious gift that you and I have ever received. And as such, you and I are called to be good stewards of that grace. And you and I are called to understand Properly, the grace of God that was won for us by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And as we understand that and apply that to our lives, it will have a dramatic impact upon the way that we live. Last week we said, in its simplest form, grace can be defined as God's unmerited favor towards unrighteous sinners by imparting to them the undeserved righteousness of Christ, which leads them into a restored relationship with Himself. So God has has done so without any merit or, or, or effort on our part. He has imparted to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's put that to our spiritual account. And it now declares us to be righteous before Him because of what Christ has done. So, 
as we are called to be stewards of grace, we are called to not be ungrateful recipients. And we looked last week at the first six verses of 1 Peter chapter 4, and we said that one of the ways that we steward God's grace is by embracing that eventual suffering that will come as being followers of Jesus Christ, but we do so understanding the greater purposes of God, that just as our Lord Jesus endured suffering because He understood God's greater plan of redemption, that you and I need to embrace the eventual suffering that will come for righteousness' sake, knowing that God has a greater plan in our lives through that suffering. And we also saw that to be good stewards of God's grace means that we make a definite break with the deliberate practice of sin in our lives, that we are no longer to be controlled by unbridled passions as followers of Jesus Christ, that we're not to allow our sins to control us, but instead we are to allow the gospel and grace and the Holy Spirit to control us. Today we're going to look at verses 7 through 11, which is really kind of a, a part two of what it means to steward the grace of God. And he's going to tell us that another way that we steward the grace of God effectively is by pursuing and practicing biblical community with other believers in this thing that we call church. This thing which seems to have somehow or another been taken away from us over the last four weeks. This thing that many of us are beginning to feel a great appreciation for, maybe a greater appreciation than we ever have. Um, that we are to pursue biblical community in, in, in practice regularly with other Christians in what is called church. And I want to start this message by asking you a question. And the question is, if you were to describe the church to someone who has never experienced it before, how would you describe it? Let's say that you were given the opportunity to meet someone who was from a remote tribe in Africa, or maybe there was some cosmic alien that landed in your backyard. Whatever the case, if you were to meet someone who had never experienced the Christian church before and they were to say, I hear you talking about this thing called church, what does that mean? What would you say to them? How would you describe the church? Would you describe it as a place where Christians gather each week and sing religious songs and listen to a preacher like me give a 35-minute sermon? That, would that be how you would describe church? That church is a religious practice that you attend? Certainly the church is bigger than that. Would you describe the church as some sort of religious shopping mall where church members are given the privilege of participating in programs designed to offer them spiritual entertainment and personal fulfillment? Would that be how you would describe the church? Because certainly that's not the way the New Testament describes it. Would you describe the church as maybe some sort of religious subset of the greater culture that exists in order to give Christians political clout, to influence laws and mandate certain personal practices and to outlaw others? Would you describe that as the church? Because that's what some of the culture that we live in sees as the church, but certainly that's not how the New Testament describes the church. You see, I believe we have a massive misperception in the Western culture and in the Western church by what we actually mean when we say the church. And that misperception exists primarily because most of us who are followers of Jesus Christ have embraced unbiblical practices in the church that actually have little to do with what actually constitutes what the New Testament calls the church. We have a massive misunderstanding about what the gospel is and therefore how to apply the gospel as good stewards of God's grace. 
And I want to tell you by the testimony of Scripture that the gospel does not redeem us in order to turn us into religious consumers. The gospel does not redeem us in order to turn us into cultural politicians. The gospel does not redeem us for anything other than to make us disciples who follow Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the gospel. It's to transform us from those who were once separated and apart from Christ into those who are now connected by faith to Christ who are disciples of Him. And if you got the notes this week in your, in your email inbox, you'll probably have those there before you, and you'll see that one of those notes says that the gospel rightly understood and practiced does not create a spiritual organization but a practicing biblical community. The gospel, rightly understood, as Peter tells us here, and rightly practiced, does not create within us a spiritual organization, but it creates a practicing biblical community. And I want to stop before we read our text, and I just want to talk for a little bit about the difference between biblical community and what we often refer to in the church as fellowship. You know, fellowship in a Southern Baptist church means that we're going to have fried chicken and mashed potatoes and sweet tea. That's what fellowship in a Baptist church often means. But that's not what the Bible means when it's talking about fellowship, when it's talking about koinonia. It's talking about something that's much deeper than getting together and having dinner on the grounds or having some people over to your house to have a cup of coffee. It goes much deeper than that. You see, fellowship for the way most of the time that we use it in the church is, is casual and it's random. It's something that we do whenever we decide we're going to schedule a church fellowship. But biblical community is intentional and it's purposeful. Fellowship keeps relationships on the surface. The relationships within most of the time what the church calls fellowship are usually superficial. We just kind of stay on the surface. We, we ask each other the same general questions and, and we give each other the same general answers. But biblical community takes our relationships deeper into one another's lives. It, 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 helped, it gives us a vehicle to accomplish all the one another's that the Bible tells us, that we're to pray for one another, we're to bear one another's burdens, we're to confess our sins to one another, we're to encourage one another, we're to serve one another. Those things take place within biblical community. Fellowship, as we often talk about it in the church, is optional. We're having a fellowship. You can come if you'd like to. But community is, in, in biblical community, involvement is not optional. Involvement is expected and necessary. And in fellowship, we tend to create casual spiritual spectators. But in biblical community, our intention is to create intentional, obedient disciples. And with that in mind, I want us to read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7-11, through 11, because in this passage, Peter is talking to us about being good stewards of the grace of God, and one of the ways that manifests itself is that we pursue biblical community with other disciples in the church. So if you have a Bible, look at verse 7 with me. We're going to go back and recapture the last verse that we looked at last week, where Peter reminds us that the end of all things is at hand. We need to live with the end in mind. We need, to, we need to live each day in light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Just look at that passage right there, those several verses, and look at how many times the Bible gives us one another's in this short passage. It tells us in verse 8 to love one another earnestly. It tells us in verse 9 to show hospitality to one another. And it tells us in verse 10 to use our gifts to serve one another. All those things happen within the context of what we call biblical community. And so the big idea of what we are talking about today as good stewards of God's grace is that Christ most powerfully displays the beauty of His grace in a broken world through the community of believers called the church. Those notes are going to be up there on your screen. Christ most beautifully and powerfully displays the beauty of His grace that He's demonstrated to us in Christ Jesus in a broken world through the community of believers called the church. We are the vessels of His grace. We are the trophies of His grace. And as we live life together, God demonstrates His grace through us. Peter reminds us throughout the book of 1 Peter that as disciples of Jesus, we are called to suffer for righteousness' sake. But he also reminds us that while we may be called to suffer for righteousness' sake, we are not called to suffer in isolation. We are not called to suffer in isolation. One of God's greatest gifts to us as believers is one another, each other, what we call the church. And so with that in mind, I want to give you four practices of true biblical community. Four things that I believe that every disciple of Jesus Christ brings to the table with what we would refer to as the church as a community. And these are four practices that we, that we pursue collectively as a church body, but these are also four practices that we pursue individually in our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. And the first of those practices is that we are to practice self-discipline and biblical clarity for the sake of our prayers. Peter makes this very clear in verse 7 that we are to practice self-discipline and biblical clarity for the sake of our prayers. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And when he reminds us that the end of all things is at hand, he, he is going back and reminding us again that we're to live each day as one who is ready to give an account before God. That we're to live our lives ready that if Jesus Christ came this afternoon, that we could stand before him and give a good account of our lives as followers of him. And Peter says, in light of that truth, then we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded. He's reminding us that when we live our lives with the end in mind as someone who is ready to give an account to the Lord Jesus, then one of the ways that is practiced in, in, in our public lives is we commit ourselves to living lives that are marked by self-control and sober-mindedness. Now, what does that mean? Self-control simply means the ability to have mastery over our choices and to not live in such a way that we only pursue the unbridled passions of our flesh. 
Self-control means that we have mastery over our choices, that we don't just choose because of what we want or what we desire to pursue, but we've attained a certain sense of mastery over our choices so that we no longer live for the unbridled passion of our flesh. Self-control means understanding that there are a lot of things in the Christian life that we could do and maybe even want to do, but that doing everything we may want to do is not always the most beneficial path for ourselves and for others. Self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit that is developed in the lives of believers. When the Spirit resides within us, He develops the fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is not, is not some giant spiritual fruit bowl where you can decide if you want an apple or a banana or a grape today. The fruit of the Spirit is all of those things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So when you have the Spirit in you by faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit works within you and me to develop self-control, mastery over our choices that knows that there are a lot of things that we could do and may want to do, but they are not always beneficial for ourselves or for others. Sober-mindedness means to have mastery over our thoughts. It means to have mental alertness. It means that disciples of Jesus Christ are mentally alert to the fact that we are citizens of the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ and as such, we need to think like kingdom citizens. It means that we filter the philosophies and the messages that we receive every day through the truth of the word of God, allowing our minds to be mastered by King Jesus. And these two things, self-control and sober-mindedness, are to be taken together as a couplet. They work together because self-control comes from sober-mindedness. Right behavior comes from right belief. Now what does self-control and sober-mindedness have to do with the church? What does it have to do with the corporate body called the church? Well, it's in the context of biblical community that God has given us, that we learn the apostles' doctrine that teaches us how to be sober-minded. And it's within the community of the church that we learn the personal expectations for what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's as we live in biblical community with other Christians that we learn the disciplines to study God's Word deeper, that we learn how to confess our sins to other believers to be restored and to practice repentance. It's within the context of other disciples that we practice repentance and exercise faith. This idea of self-control and sober-mindedness cannot be pursued apart from living in relationship with other disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, too many times in the Western evangelical church, we've turned church into a private spiritual shopping mall designed to either entertain or motivate spiritual consumers instead of developing biblically functioning disciples. And we need to understand that we cannot motivate holiness in the lives of people through creative talks or inspirational songs. Those things do not promote holiness. We cannot promote holiness without personal accountability to the greater body of Jesus Christ. When I was a young Christian... One of the things that I learned early on was that the way that I lived my life mattered now and the things that I did spoke not only about my personal relationship with Christ, but they spoke about the Christian body that I was involved in. 
And so I had a youth minister who poured into my life, who, who began to show me that, yeah, these are certain things that you could do that all of your friends are doing and everybody else in the culture is doing, but these are not things that you should do as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I learned that by living in community with the church. You and I need the only kind of true biblical community that can be found in the church because without it, we cannot develop the self-discipline and the sober-mindedness necessary to become a true disciple of Jesus. Peter even says that this is so important that it affects the quality and the effectiveness of our prayers, both personally and corporately. And so, a biblical church is a praying church, and a biblical disciple is a praying disciple. But we cannot pursue and develop deeper prayer lives when we live lives that are inconsistent with the gospel or when we think things that are unsound in doctrine. And so the first thing that we need to do is, as followers of Jesus, both personally and corporately, we practice self-discipline and biblical clarity for the sake of our prayers. The second thing that he tells us, the second practice, is that we are to love each other earnestly and sincerely for the sake of our purity. We're to love each other in the church earnestly and sincerely for the sake of our purity. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Over and over again, the New Testament reminds us that the central quality of disciples of Jesus Christ is that they practice sacrificial love towards one another and towards the lost world around them. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, Jesus was telling us that love is the biblical evidence of discipleship. Love is the biblical evidence of connection to Jesus Christ. The world will know that we as a church are disciples of Jesus by the love that we demonstrate to one another. And speaking to the church in Colossae, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So Paul says as, as the body of believers, we're to, we're to pursue compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, and even forgiveness. But in verse 14 he says, Above all these things put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all these other things. Put on love. This idea of above all is the same thing that Peter says in verse 8. This phrase above all is a phrase that speaks of ultimate priority. It distinguishes love as the central mark of biblical community. You see, I love a lot of people that are in my life, but I love my wife above all. She is the ultimate priority of my life. And as in the same way, as Christians, there are a lot of things that we demonstrate in the church, but above all, we are to love one another earnestly. It's impossible to have true biblical community in the church without genuine, sacrificial, and selfless love between the disciples who make up that church. Without that genuine, sacrificial love, biblical community does not exist. Because genuine love for one another is what compels us to take the time to meet together on Sundays and Wednesdays and in personal Bible studies. 
Genuine love is what motivates to speak the truth to one another, even sometimes when that truth is hard. Have you ever had a, a fellow Christian come to you and say to you, you know, brother, sister, I love you, and because I love you, I need to tell you that this thing in your life, this, this thing that I see is not consistent with what the Scripture teaches, and I want to pray with you, and I want to encourage you to, to, to pursue a different path and to repent of that. That's what love does. Motivate, love motivates us to live holy lives in front of one another, knowing that our lives matter and that how we live speaks of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love is what causes us to confront one another when something in our lives is inconsistent with Scripture. And one thing I've noticed during this time of social distancing is that people aren't just missing coming to a building and engaging in a worship experience. People are missing one another during this time. We're missing something that can only take place when true disciples of Jesus Christ gather together. And that's biblical community. And that biblical community is grounded in genuine, personal, sacrificial, selfless love. Above all, the church is to be a place where we love one another and we do so earnestly. This word earnestly means to the depths of our being. Loving one another earnestly means that we go beyond sacrificial hellos and handshakes to a point where we seek to truly know one another and invest in each other's lives. This is what happens in biblical community. And that is very difficult to do in the context of a building on Sunday morning where everything is real superficial. But that biblical community happens as we meet in our groups, in our Sunday school classes, in our small groups, in our discipleship groups, as we plug in into smaller groups of disciples with whom we have things in common to study God's Word together. This is why during this time, one of the things that we have noticed in the church is that those who were already connected to some sort of Sunday school or small group are better equipped to survive this time of social distancing as a follower of Jesus Christ than those who aren't. And so it's an encouragement that when we're able to gather back together again, if you haven't already plugged in and found a Sunday school class or a small group, then you need to find one. Let us help you do that. Maybe, maybe some of you out there are beginning to feel a conviction that you need to start a small group that might meet in your home or meet on campus on sometime on, during the week or in the evenings just to try to connect with other believers. This is because we love one another and love pursues community. Peter says that love covers a multitude of sins. Now by this, he doesn't mean that our love for one another is what forgives us of our personal sin. And he doesn't mean that love sweeps sin under the rug every time a bad thing happens. The word covering sin, sins is synonymous with the idea of forgiveness. And it's a reminder to us that true disciples not only experience forgiveness personally, but they are extensions of forgiveness to brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, even to those who may have wronged us or done harm to us at one time. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13 that love keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, love doesn't keep score. And so one of the practices that we are to do as followers of Jesus Christ is we are to love one another earnestly for the sake of our personal and corporate purity. But number three, we are to open our lives and practice sincere hospitality towards one another for the sake of our unity. We are to open our lives and we are to practice sincere hospitality towards one another for the sake of our unity as followers of Jesus Christ. We see this in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
One of the natural byproducts of biblical community among disciples and genuine love is a natural opening of our lives to one another, and sometimes that extends into the opening of our homes. You see, hospitality was extremely vital in the first century culture because many of these newfound disciples of Jesus Christ were were gathering together with other Christians and they lived in places where there weren't public lodging or even affordable lodging. And so many times these new believers would be brought into a house with another follower of Jesus Christ and they would be invited to come in and live with them for a little while. In Acts chapter 2, we read what biblical hospitality looks like when in Acts chapter 2 it says, All who believed, those are the disciples, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They lived life together. There was a, a commonality. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. They were, they were sharing their resources. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What we see in Acts chapter 2 is that true biblical hospitality among disciples is a highway to effective evangelism. We see that when we open our homes and our lives to one another, it creates pathways in which we can invite lost people into our lives and show them the demonstration of the gospel in a way that extends outside of the walls of the church. One of my favorite writers, Rosaria Butterfield, has recently written an excellent book on this topic called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And during this time of social distancing and isolation, maybe you're picking up the practice of reading, I would encourage you to put that book on your reading list. The fact of the matter is that it's impossible to love Jesus Christ and understand the gospel and at the same time be stingy with our resources and our lives. It's impossible. The gospel creates a hospitable community of believers. And I think a lot of things are going to look very different when we come out on the other side of this viral pandemic. And one of the truths that I have noticed is how easily we are dependent upon thinking that church best happens within the walls of this building. But it was never designed to be that way. Church best happens communally when we live lives to open up our homes and our personal lives in such a way to those that God has placed in our path whether they're our brothers and sisters in Christ or whether they're our lost neighbors across the street. I want to encourage you right now to begin thinking about ways that you can begin to use your home and your resources to demonstrate the gospel to people in the church and to lost people around you. Maybe even during this time of isolation, you can, you can make a meal for one of your lost neighbors and you can say, hey, look, we're going to provide curbside service for you this week. We're cooking and we're going to cook double. We're going to bring you a meal Tuesday night and just do that as a demonstration of love for one of your neighbors. We need to remember that some of the best environments for the gospel do not take place in any room within Central Park Baptist Church. The best environments for the gospel are the living rooms of our church members. And Peter says that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, are to practice biblical hospitality and we're to do so without grumbling. This means that as we practice hospitality, we're not to complain about the quality of our house or the lack of our resources. We're not to compare with what we have with others because those things break down and distort unity and hospitality. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, may we pursue and sincere hospitality towards one another for the sake 
of Christian unity. And then finally, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to use our spirit-empowered gifts to serve one another for the sake of Christ's glory and as a demonstration of His grace. We're to use our spirit-empowered gifts to serve one another for the sake of Christ's glory and as a demonstration of His grace. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. Peter says each has received a gift. This means that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, you already have spiritual gifts. If you're connected to Christ, you are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. And if the Spirit of Christ lives in you, then He has equipped you with specific gifts to serve the body of Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of if you are gifted, but how you are gifted. And I know there's a lot of spiritual gifts tests out there, and many of them are really good, but you don't have to have a spiritual gifts test to understand how you're gifted. Spiritual gifts are simply the natural expressions of how we best serve others. For instance... I have the gift of exhortation. And the gift of exhortation is a, is a verbal gift. It's a gift that comes through speaking. In other words, I speak a lot. And because of that, it enables me to teach spiritual truth in a clear manner. And that gift is used in the public teaching ministry of the church. You might have the gift of mercy or the gift of helps which enables you to feel deeply for other people and find ways and avenues to minister to them. Or maybe one of your gifts might be the gift of giving. And giving doesn't mean that you simply sit down and write a check. The gift of giving enables you to not only be good at making money, but it also gives you a heart of generosity that wants to support the work of the kingdom of God. And so God's given you the ability to, to not only make money for yourself, but to use those resources in a way to fund the Great Commission. That's a spiritual gift that can be used in the church. There are dozens of gifts and it's very likely that all of us in the church have several of them. Peter says, since you have a gift, use it to serve one another. Use your gift. God didn't give you the gift to draw attention to you. God gave you the gift to serve people in the church and to do so as a good steward of grace. You see, the grace of God calls us into a biblical community with other disciples where we use the natural gifts of the Spirit of God inside of us to build up the body of Christ. Now, Peter doesn't define what spiritual gifts are. He really just gives us two categories. He gives us speaking gifts and he gives us serving gifts. Speaking gifts might be gifts like preaching, teaching, or even encouragement and encouraging others verbally. Serving gifts would be things like the ministry of helps or mercy or generosity. The point is this, that God has gifted you and you are to use those gifts to serve the body of Christ. And biblical community is built on sacrificial service to one another. We need the church as disciples because we need to find a place to serve and to have a place where people can serve us. And it goes both ways. If you're going to be part of biblical community, when someone is seeking to serve you, you can't reject their service and say, no, 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 you don't need to do that because you are robbing them of a way to exercise their spiritual gift to be a blessing to you and a blessing to the body. Now, Peter says, why do we use spiritual gifts to serve? We do so in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In other words, 
when the church is a biblically functioning community, members serve one another in the lost world around us, and as we do, Jesus Christ gets the glory. This week we saw this opportunity here at Central Park Baptist Church where we were given the opportunity to serve some of the children and families in our community by providing and assembling about 800 meals that were given out each day, Monday through Friday, at one of our local schools. And we did not do that in order to glorify ourselves. We did not do that in order to be able to put Facebook posts up about how great Central Park Baptist Church is. We did it in order to demonstrate the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ to those families in our community that are in need right now. You see, the church is not a spiritual organization that exists for religious purposes. The church is a biblical community of disciples of Jesus Christ. And so... With that in mind, let us spur one another towards self-discipline and sober-mindedness. Let us love one another earnestly. Let us demonstrate true hospitality towards one another. And let us serve one another for the sake of Christ's glory and as a demonstration of His grace. We do all of this because, as Peter says at the end of verse 11, to Him, Jesus, belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Why does Jesus deserve glory and dominion in our lives? Because Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone suffered for our sins. As he said in chapter 3, verse 18, he was the righteous one who suffered for the unrighteous, us, in order that he might bring us to God. All glory goes to the crucified and risen Savior. All glory goes to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so in closing... I want to ask you, are you pursuing biblical community with other disciples in what's called the church? Not just do you attend church. Not just do you, do you belong and have a membership on a role in a church. Are you really, as a follower of Jesus Christ, are you practicing true biblical community with other disciples? Do you have avenues in which you are encouraging and spurring one another on towards self-discipline and sound doctrine? Are you... Are you are you in community with a group of other disciples where you love one another deeply and earnestly as followers of Jesus? Are you showing hospitality to those in your life, both in the church as well as those outside in the lost world? So how are you pursuing the grace, how are you stewarding the grace of God by pursuing biblical community in the church? In a few weeks, we're going to be able to gather back again. And my hope and my prayer that at Central Park Baptist Church, we're going to find ways to creatively put these scriptures into practice and not so much get back to a list of programs that disciples can, can be a part of, but actually pursuing true biblical community at a much deeper level. And my final question for you today is, do you even know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? We talked about at the beginning of this message today that we're beginning what is called Holy Week, where we're going to celebrate the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us this coming Friday during a thing called Good Friday. And we're going to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on Sunday. But all of that means absolutely nothing to you if you don't have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to invite you today, if you're watching this broadcast and, and, and you're hearing about the church and, and maybe your perception of the church has been nothing more than a spiritual organization up to this point because you've never truly been connected to Jesus Christ. And maybe there's something in your life that longs true, deep, purposeful, spiritual community. 
And that begins by surrendering your heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're watching us today and, and you need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to do that today. We invite you to just where you are, just to pray, just to bow your heads and to close your eyes and to pray and say, Dear Jesus, I know that you love me. I know that you created me for a purpose. And I confess to you that I've lived my life for myself up to this point. But today I want to trust in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. And by faith, I want to receive the Lord Jesus as my Savior. I want to repent of my sins. I want to, I want to give my life to you and ask you to be the Lord of my life. And if you pray that prayer, then you let us know that. You can let me know by sending me an email. My email is matt at centralparkbaptist.org. You can call me or send me a text message. My number is there on the screen, 256-794-3074. If you need to know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you need to talk to somebody about that. Don't hesitate. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And we want to encourage you to pursue Christ today. So church, let's practice biblical community. Maybe we can't do that right now the way that we would like to because of the limitations that we have over the next 30 days or so. But let's begin to think about ways that we can practice community. Let's begin to think about ways that this is going to look different when we get out on the other side. And let us be good stewards of the grace of God that He has given us. Let me close this in prayer, and then we're going to dismiss you. Father in heaven, we thank you so much, once again, for the opportunity just to gather together as a faith family, even if we're not together in the room, we're together online. And we're able to watch this and we're able to sing songs that remind us about what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we're able to look at your word and be reminded again about the power of the church and how we as the church are to be a biblical community of disciples of Jesus. So help us to do that. In these days of isolation and social distancing, Father, I pray that you would create within us at Central Park Baptist Church a hunger for a deeper level of biblical community than any of us have ever experienced before. And God, I pray that you would help us to find ways to spur one another on towards self-discipline and sound doctrine. That you would help us to find ways to love one another earnestly and to not, not, not settle for superficial Christian love, but to pursue deep love with other believers. That we would find ways to demonstrate biblical hospitality towards one another in the church and towards the lost world around us. And Father, that you would find, help us to find ways to serve one another to the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you again for this time to gather together. Bless us the rest of this day. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. Today, by the way, is not only Palm Sunday, it is my son John David Haynes' 16th birthday. So I don't know if he's watching right now still or not, but if you are, happy birthday, son. I'm coming home in just a few minutes and we're making some hamburgers. And so I would invite you to come over to the house and have a hamburger, but you're under a mandate to stay at home, so you can't do that. So uh, we would invite you to just enjoy lunch where you are and join us again next Sunday for Easter Sunday, and we'll see you next week.